the gut punch of hearing those three dreadful words, you have cancer. It's like the floor just dropped out from underneath you and you're in a free fall. Fear, anger, grief, a tidal wave of emotions crashing over you. But it doesn't have to be this way. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Deming. As an integrative oncologist and former radiation oncologist who has cared for thousands of patients over her career, let me guide you safely through the fog. Join my Six Pillars of Healing Cancer workshop series. Starting May 2nd, I'll unleash the proven holistic roadmap to clarity and deep inner calm. I'll impart the fundamental nutritional, emotional, physical, and spiritual keys to unlocking your own body's healing potential. No more grasping for answers just out of reach. No more of the unknown weighing you down. Registration is open now. Check the link in this episode's description to anchor yourself to this life-changing series. You've got this. listening to the Born to Heal podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Katie Deming. After two decades of practicing as an oncologist and caring for thousands of patients, I've seen firsthand how our healthcare system places obstacles in your path to true healing. My guests and I will bridge the worlds of Western medicine and alternative healing to help you achieve optimal health. Expect to uncover new insights, share a few laughs, and maybe even shed some tears along the way. But most of all, we'll learn how to heal from within together. So let's dive into today's episode. Today's episode is part one of a two-part interview that was done with me and one of my close friends, Sonia Sanford. And this episode was done interview style so that I could share my story over the past year of my decision to leave Western medicine and then actually executing on that plan. And so today will be part one and next Tuesday we will release part two. So I hope you enjoy. Welcome back. It's been a minute. So it's been a year since my last episode because I've been on my own healing journey. And as I come back and relaunch the podcast, I want to be really intentional with the way that I set the stage for what you can expect from me and the podcast and the content that I'll be sharing moving forward. So today's episode is a special episode where I've brought on one of my dear friends, Sonia Samford, and she's going to do an interview of me to help me share my story about what has happened to me over the past year and how I've come to my new philosophy on healing and really how to help our bodies get into a state of well-being. And so I want to introduce Sonia because Sonia is, she's been a dear friend of mine since teen when we were introduced as female entrepreneurs in an accelerator program and we were partnered as accountability partners. 
At the time, Sonia was launching or opening a new restaurant, a modern Jewish deli called Beetroot. And I was relaunching my apparel brand. It had been under a licensing agreement for another brand up until that point. And so Sonia and I were put together. We were quite an unlikely pair. I have to say she was probably disappointed to be partnered with a doctor launching an apparel brand when she was opening a restaurant. Needless to say, we immediately had a bond that developed and really have become very close. And she's an important part of my life and also a very accomplished chef and food stylist and screenwriter. And I think that she's the perfect person to be with me here today to help me tell this story to you and and pull it out in a way that I think will be most impactful for you. So Sonia, welcome and thank you for being on my podcast. And can you tell the audience just a little bit about you? I know that I cannot do justice to everything that you've accomplished, but just give them a little picture of who you are and why you're here. I mean, I think part of why we relate so well is we like to kind of go big and explore life. And also we've had a lot of twists and turns, particularly in the last few years. But so my kind of non-linear background is that I started out working in television, producing television, and then I always loved food and I became a personal chef in Hollywood. And so I opened a restaurant. And then of course, as timing would have it, I opened that restaurant six months before COVID hit. And so we didn't survive the pandemic and it was kind of a big loss, but also one of the most transformative experiences of my life. And now I primarily am a writer. I do screenwriting and also I write articles about food and share recipes. And on occasion, if you're a special client, I will chef for you. I have learned so much from you about the food that I feed my family. And we did a kitchen audit where you went through and helped me get rid of cookware that was potentially toxic and, you know, really finding the staples in my pantry that are not only sustainably harvest, but also as clean as possible. And so the services that you are providing in teaching people about the food that they eat is so important and such a thing that I really encourage other people to find out more about because there's so much that we just don't know. There are a lot of things that I didn't know, even as a doctor. Yeah, it's something I'm super passionate about. Definitely get in touch through Instagram or through my site. But yes, I do group classes, one-on-ones, everything from meal planning to understanding how to shop. Generally, like I'm not a big strict rule person. I'm more of like, how do you create a system that really works for you? But my podcast is about food and cooking. I host it with one of my closest friends. It's called Food Friends. The whole point was like, we love each other. We love connecting. And we also love being able to share what we've learned with other people and hopefully get them inspired to get out a big pot, make soup or whatever it is. But enough about me. I'd really like to talk about you. You already mentioned that we met in a cohort together in an accelerator program for women entrepreneurs. And at that time, I mean, it's almost unrecognizable what our lives look like. When I met you then, you were full-time working at a hospital as a doctor. You had also this apparel line. You had your own small business that was growing, that was really helping women. And I was so inspired by just the all you were doing. And you're this mother of three and you were, you know, driving your kids all around town. That's actually how we were meeting. My restaurant coincidentally happened to be next door to where your daughter took acting classes. But I guess my first question is, because life looks so different from what it did, what it looked like then, 
What was sort of the first moment that you realized like you need to make a change that this lifestyle you've been living wasn't working anymore? Yeah. And the interesting thing is, is that this all started in 2019, which is when you and I met and we were meeting regularly. And really, at first, I didn't know what was coming or what needed to change. I just knew starting at about 2019 that something was off. And I I literally could not put words to it, but I sensed that I wasn't meant to be practicing radiation oncology. I wasn't meant to be doing what I was doing at that time. But to be honest, it didn't really make sense to me. And I was like, I don't know if it means that I'm supposed to just be doing business, but that didn't feel right because I really love taking care of patients. And I, and I love the intimacy that is found in an oncology practice, but I felt like something was off. And at the time, I talked to my husband and I said, you know, I don't know why, but I have this sense that I'm not supposed to be doing what I'm doing. And and he was surprised and confused. It was like, well, it doesn't make sense to me because you've trained your whole life to do this particular practice. You trained until you were 32 years old. And so you've committed all of this time to this specialty. And then from a lifestyle standpoint, your practice is pretty easy. You know, you work four days a week and you're really good at what you do. You get great feedback from your patients and colleagues. So you're good at it and it's meaningful and you make a lot of money and you've got retirement, you know, pension, all these things. They talk about the golden handcuffs, especially with the organization that I was with was a large HMO that had very, very good benefits he was like, I don't get it. Maybe you're just never going to be happy. That was a conversation that we had was like, maybe, you know, he, he really took it as maybe there's something wrong with you. If you can't be happy with a career that is lucrative, easy, impactful, you know, maybe there's something wrong with you. And at the time I like took that, I was like, well, gosh, maybe there is something wrong with me. I'm always open to hearing from those people who are closest to me. And so we were having this discussion and I knew that if I left medicine, it was going to be some, mean some major changes in my life, especially given the fact that he was not supportive and didn't understand this. So I just kind of filed it away and, and kind of let it be, but didn't really take any actions on it at that time in 2019. But I also want to tell another little story that happened in 2019 that relates to this whole conversation. And that was in 2019, I helped a patient transition. So die using death with dignity, which is now it's called medical aid in dying. But basically the concept is someone who has a terminal illness can take a medication to end their life. And when I signed up to do this kind of work, I had always said that if my patients want me to be there physically with them when they make that transition that I would do that. And so in 2019, I helped my first patient um, through that process. And her name was Patsy and she was an incredible woman. And I had this just really beautiful experience with her as she ended her life. I was with her and her daughter. And I remember coming home from that experience that day and just the most profound 
thing on my mind was when I leave, I'm leaving alone. And whatever I'm facing, I'm going to face that alone. Mm -hmm. And I cannot let anyone else peer pressure me into living my life in a way that is not in alignment with my true self because I'm leaving here alone. I will not be able to point to them and say, hey, it's their fault. You know, like that was just such a clear knowing that I had when I left her house that day. And when I came home, I told my husband that. And I said, when I leave here, when you leave here, when any of us leave here, we are leaving alone. And that means that we have to be true to ourselves. We can't listen to what anyone else wants us to do. And I don't know the timing of this particular conversation in relation to the other conversation that I was having with him about not feeling aligned in radiation oncology, but I remember his response and he was like, oh, that means that you don't care what I think. It's only important what you think. Both of these conversations, the one about my career and then the one about dying really sat with me and they kind of shook me and stayed with me. I tell those stories to kind of set the stage that I was starting to have these inklings that something was not right, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And it didn't make logical sense from a career standpoint. If you looked at me from the outside, you would think, gosh, here's a woman who has everything she could have ever wanted. She has a successful career. She's got a family. She's got all the things like I could buy whatever I want because my career was lucrative. And, and so all of those things from the outside look like, okay, this is someone who has everything they could want. So then it was very confusing for me to be like, yeah, yeah, I know it looks like that, but there's something off that was inside. And that's really kind of the way things started. It was kind of subtle and, and, and just in the background. And I was trying to figure out what to do with these feelings. So that's really how it started. Yeah. This is something you worked your whole life to achieve. I don't think it's so easy to comprehend from the outside how much work it takes to become a doctor, let alone a radiation oncologist, let alone at the level that you were practicing medicine. You were at the highest level. You were revered nationally and locally. That's such a huge, those are high stakes to walk away from. Talk about courage. Talk about listening to yourself. That's not easy. And I'm wondering because you knew there was something that wasn't quite right about the way that you were practicing, the way that you were maybe healing others, even though you knew that was what something you were passionate about doing, what were some of the things that didn't felt off? Can you pinpoint that? Like you must've been searching your mind because these are pretty extreme things to think in the face of like your partner doesn't support it. Society is going to look at you sideways. All these things that are telling you why on earth would you leave this? So what were the why on earth things that were popping up for you? So this is a great question. And I think at the time I didn't know, but I can say in retrospect, I can see some things that were clues for me. And some of it was a disillusionment with Western medicine. I really believe that my colleagues in Western medicine and myself were all in it to do the best thing for patients. And our goal is really to help people. But what I saw was that, yes, we were helping people 
But were we really fixing the problem? One of the experiences that I had, and I've talked about this on one of my past episodes, was that there's this parable of the river. And I heard it at a yoga retreat with one of my colleagues, one of my very good friends who's a GYN oncologist. And we were at this meditation retreat and they told this story about this village where one day they noticed a body floating in the river. And so they swam out and they rescued the body and, and they got the person onto dry land. And then the next day there were two people in the river. And so then they got a couple people together and they organized to get these bodies and help these people get out of the river. And then every day there were like doubling of these people who were drowning in the river. And the village got very organized and their village elders were praising them for the good work of how efficient they were of rescuing these people out of the river. And as I listened to this story, I was like, this is Western oncology. Like we are rescuing these people out of the river, but what the heck is going on upstream? And why are they falling in the river? And why are we not talking about once we get them on dry land, how to keep them out of the river? Or how do you catch them before they even fall into the river to prevent them from falling in in the first place? And so I had this like deep sense that although the work that I was doing was important and valuable, it wasn't really solving the problem. And I think that now in retrospect, I can see that it was this like unrest for myself of like thinking, gosh, there's a bigger problem here to solve and nobody's talking about it. And by the way, as in like society, we are getting sicker. I was just watching as the patients were coming in and I'm like, this is like, we are not getting healthier as a society. If we really have healthcare figured out, what the heck is going on? Because patients are stressed and overeating and not exercising and not at home in their bodies. They are not healthy. We are like as a society getting sicker and sicker. And for me, that was a wake up call. Like, okay, I don't know what the solution is, but there must be a better way to do this. And the other thing that should be noted in here that's related to my career is that I have been in healthcare design and leadership. So in addition to being a practicing radiation oncology and oncologist and also an entrepreneur, I had been a leader in cancer care and specifically had redesigned the cancer service line for the Northwest region of Kaiser Permanente and had done that actually as a volunteer, which is really weird because I told the CEO, I said, we've got like an issue here. You own every aspect of cancer care from screening to diagnosis to treatment to end of life or survivorship. But yet you treat these like all different services. Like it's not a coordinated process to help a patient navigate their journey with cancer. And this conversation had come on the heels of they had used me to basically redesign medical oncology. So that's an unusual thing. I'm a radiation oncologist, but in 2013, I was made chief of medical oncology and revamped their medical oncology department because it was not very patient-centered. So the whole idea was to shift the focus of that specialty within that organization to be much more focused around the patient's needs. And so after I had done that work, then I was like, okay, look, you've got a bigger issue here that you really, there's an opportunity here. 
And they had said to me, we'll just let you keep your admin time for what you had been doing in medical oncology. And if you want to like see what could be done on an organizational level for cancer, have at it, you know? And so basically I collaborated with a bunch of my colleagues. So finding leaders in in all of the different types of cancer. And we created different task forces for the different types of cancer and mapped out, okay, what does this look like for a patient? Where are the pain points for the patients as to how to get their best care? And how do we make this easy and smooth for them? And basically, we redesigned all of cancer services for that region. To make it them more integrated? To make it more of a team that they people really felt like they were being guided through a process. Because for each cancer, it's quite similar what people go through. It might be slightly different, but for the most part, for each type of cancer, you can map that out and determine, okay, what's the easiest way to help those patients through that process? So we did that. And um, that was like really interesting for me because it was really powerful work because it showed me that the doctors are motivated to make things better. Like all of this work that we did, it was over about 18 months. It was all volunteer. We did it all before hours, during lunch, after hours. There were hundreds of people who volunteered on these different task forces because I had 12 physician leaders for each of the task forces. There were were 12 task forces. And then we probably had between 10 and 15 doctors and professionals on each task force. And so all of this work was done because the doctors and the staff wanted to provide better care. So they did this all as a volunteer. And I, I promised them, I said, look, if we do this, they said, then they will be able to, will be able to create a business case to get funding so that then this work will be supported. And then we can get, you know, admins and project managers and all this stuff. And long story short, we did all of that. And then ultimately they didn't fund it. And it was like mm-hmm. so maddening because I was like, oh my gosh, this stuff is saving the organizations probably hundreds of thousands of dollars if you started to do things in these ways that was more patient-centered, eliminating stuff that didn't need to happen, that was excess, and and helping people do better with their treatment. So we were making all these improvements that were saving the organization money, but then yet that was so short-sighted as to invest to make these sustainable changes within the organization. And it did two things for me. One, number one, it made me realize the system is really broken. The system is not designed to be the most patient-centered, to help patients get the best outcome. It literally is really about the money. And the other piece of it is that it was, you know, disheartening for me, for my colleagues, because here they were, they had stepped up, they had all done this like on their own time. And then it was like, basically like kind of spitting in their face to say, you know what? We don't really care. Yeah. Like you guys can work extra and you can do this, but we don't think it's important. And I think that was part of it that really kind of shook me and made me realize there's something wrong with the system. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you're really talking about a microcosm of a larger system. You're talking about something that lacked integration, that lacked sort of the patient-centered focus that, again, goes back to your river analogy. It was just in this one area of your field and your de- and this design project, but it reflects like a larger systemic issue. And it makes sense that that was rattling, especially because I remember when you were going through that, I remember your dreams and you really felt this potential to really shift how cancer was being treated at a national level. 
And it must have been sort of disheartening and shocking to not be able to move forward after all that work and all the momentum around it. Yeah, absolutely. And what you just brought up there is leads me into, so when that happened at a local level, so that was in my region, that was the Northwest region of the U.S. And all of that just basically fell apart. And at the time, I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to focus on my business. And so I had kind of focused more on Make Mary. This was like, from like 2016 to like 2019. Well, this was before Mm because later, what I'm remembering is a later project. Exactly. So I'm going to get to that. So what you're talking about is that basically I had been really disheartened with this and, you know, was saddened basically by the lack of investment in the organization. And also I kind of got the sense that maybe they didn't see the value of what had been created. And so anyway... What happened in 2020 was that I was approached by the national office for the organization that I was with. And they basically told me, and this was out of the blue, this was in the summer of 2020, and I was feeling disillusioned with everything. And I got this call that said, Kaiser Permanente is looking at creating a national cancer service line. They want to really coordinate across regions and they want to create an integrated system on a national level, and you've been nominated as the medical director. And there were six other oncologists who had been nominated for this position as well. But that was so interesting because I was so disillusioned. I was like, I don't even want that position. I'm like, no. And then I had to like tell myself, okay, there's always opportunity in any situation. And so let's think about this. Like you felt like they didn't value this work, but now someone is saying that they're thinking that there's value to this and that they want to do it on a national level. It would be kind of silly for you not to at least, you know, go through the process and do the interviews and, and understand what they're trying to create, because this is what I'm good at. I'm really good at envisioning things done differently and, and looking at ways to design better care. And so I basically went through that process. I spent all of the summer of 2020 diving headfirst back into all this and putting my visionary hat on of looking at what could it be like to create a cancer program for 12 million Americans. That's how many Americans would have been served within this organization from a cancer perspective, you know, prevention and screening, like the whole continuum. And so I allowed myself to get really excited about all of this again and to dive in. And and I also just realized that for me, I'm always looking at ways that I can grow myself. And so I thought of these interviews as an opportunity for me to stretch myself and step into a role that would really make change for a lot of people. I went through that. And then ultimately, it came down to me and one other woman, and the other woman got the position. And I'm always like, I actually was kind of relieved because I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if the organization was ready for the changes that I wanted to make. And actually, that's what the CEO said to me. He said, you know, you kind of like the dark horse in this thing because no one knew about you. Like on the national level, they didn't really know about me. It was that I had been nominated by the CEO of my region. And they were like, your ideas about what could be, what's possible blew us away. But in the end, your recommendations or the direction that you wanted to go, I don't know if the organization is ready to do those things yet. And so 
basically I knew that when that didn't go through, it was like a blessing that whatever's meant to happen for me or what I'm meant to build, it mean it's not going to be within the organization in this way. And so that was basically the fall of 2020. I had just gone through all of that. And I, it really became clearer for me at that point. I'm like, I want to build something and I want to do something on a larger scale, but it's not going to be this. And so that's, that's what you were part of. You watched all of that because I was friends with you when I was going through that whole interview process. And I remember you really having a vision and really having hope that you could sort of make fundamental changes from the inside. And it was sort of a conversation of, okay, this is going to be my attempt. If I'm going to change the system from the inside, this is the role I can do it in. And then when the role was no longer available, it sort of, from my perspective, became clearer to you that maybe this really, it was really time to leave. Hey, Conscious Healers, Dr. Katie Deming here. I've created an intimate space where we dive deeper into complex healing topics, where you can get personalized product recommendations and more resources to fuel your conscious healing journey. I'm excited to announce that I've launched the Born to Heal Substack newsletter. You'll receive exclusive information that goes beyond the one hour a week we have here together. Behind the scenes interviews, delicious healing recipes, And on occasion, episodes get a bit too, you know, science-y. So I'll create a handy FAQ for those episodes. Subscribe for free today at katiedemingmd.substack.com or find the link in the episode description and get ready for a weekly infusion of holistic health wisdom. Yeah, and, and so the thing is, is that I knew I wanted to leave, but I still had that whole issue with my husband. So I was like, okay, well, it's not this. And like, basically I had spent the whole summer completely focused on the potential for this opportunity and, you know, all my time interviewing and prepping and and creating business plans for what it could look like. And and so when that all ended and that kind of came to a completion, you're right. I was like, I knew I was going to have to leave, but I still didn't have a clear path. And I didn't know what I wanted to create. I didn't know exactly what that would look like. And what happened was, is that that around that time, the fall of 2020 is when I had a an experience that really fundamentally changed me. And I've talked about this experience on some other podcasts, but I don't think that I've fully explained it on my podcast. And I want to tell this story because I think it's really important. And now I have some better perspective on what happened and how I think that it ultimately catapulted me into the changes that I've made from a career perspective. But the experience that I had is, I think, you know, there are a couple of terms that can be used for an experience like this. One is shared death experience and another is a crisis connection. And I think it just depends on the person that you talk to is how they would classify this. But the best way to describe it is that it's like a near death experience, but the person who experiences this is not the one who died. They actually kind of connected with someone who was dying and they experienced what the person who was dying experienced as they crossed over and as they transitioned. And if you think about shared death experiences specifically, this is an experience that is reported mainly by doctors and emergency personnel. So paramedics or people who arrive on the scene 
as someone is dying or in the emergency room as someone is dying and the nurses or doctors or whoever is at the scene, they can experience these very profound metaphysical experiences that are unexplainable, but that the idea is, is that they've connected somehow with the soul of the person transitioning and they have these tremendous experiences, like as if they had had a near-death experience themselves. And so I had an experience like this in the fall of 2020 and I couldn't explain it at the time, but now I have some more context to be able to explain it. But the simple story of what happened was, is that one day in meditation, I had a woman's voice come to me. And the woman's voice basically said, I can't leave, but it's not because of me. It's because of them. And instinctively, I knew immediately that she was dying and that she was talking about her family or her friends and that she was having trouble letting go. And so I just talked to her as if I was talking to a patient who was transitioning. And so I literally just told her, you know what? It's okay. There's no rush. You can take your time and I'll be with you. I'm just going to stay with you. And when you, when it's time, you'll know and I'll be with you through the process. And so basically I just sat with her in meditation. And the interesting thing is, is that in retrospect, I'm like, how did I know what to do? Or why didn't I freak out? But I literally just knew that she needed me in that moment. And so I sat with her and now the details are a little bit blurry, but it it was probably like 30 to 40 minutes that I was in this meditation. And at some point during the meditation, I saw that it was this woman, Misty. And I didn't know Misty, but Misty was a friend of one of my colleagues. So one of my colleagues, best friend from childhood, was named Misty. She was in her early 30s, if I recall, like definitely young, like early 30s, maybe late 20s, but I think early 30s. And she was dying of breast cancer. And the way that I knew about Misty was because I had been helping to coach my colleague to support Misty. And so I was helping my friend, you know, make sure that Misty's wishes were honored and that that she could keep her at home and that her pain was managed. And also coaching through my friend, the process of losing a very good friend at such a young age, right? Like this is not something that we're used to of having someone really young die. And so I had been coaching my friend. And so at some point during this meditation, I saw, oh, this is Misty. And so then I just talked to her and basically was just with her and and sitting in meditation with her. And then at some point, like I said, it was probably 30 or 40 minutes. I started to feel a pulling and it was a pulling up and I could sense that her soul was pulling away from her body. And what I sensed at that moment, because I I don't want to say heard because I I don't, all of these things, I'm not sure if I heard them or saw them or I just sensed it. But basically, I sensed these popping. It was like pop, pop, pop. And it was like strings, like being popped. Like as her soul pulled away from her body, there were these popping of like strings. And I didn't know what that was at the time. I had no idea what that was related to too. But so I, I felt this pulling, heard these pops And then all of a sudden, the sky like opened up above me and it was the most love and light I've ever seen and I don't even have words for. And basically, as that happened, she gasped 
And she was like, I never had anything to worry about. It's so beautiful. And then like I was just washed over with the most love and light that I can imagine. I can't describe it. It's just beyond anything that I've ever experienced. And then she was gone. And I have no idea how long I was in that space because I it was so surreal. And then time is just like not the same in whatever space that I was in. Oh my gosh, I was just overcome and just bathed in like the most beautiful love that that I could ever imagine. And after that meditation, I was like, what just happened? Totally confused. I was like, okay, I'm not doing drugs. I haven't drank any alcohol. I don't know what just happened. And I I didn't have any context for it. And I didn't know whether it was real or it was like in my imagination, but I had never had a meditation like that before in my life. And so that night I went to bed. I didn't tell my husband what had happened. I didn't tell anyone because I just didn't even know what to say about it. And so I went to bed that night. And then the next morning, I woke up with a text from my friend, my colleague. And the text was a photo of Misty and saying that Misty had transitioned the night before. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And so then I was like, oh my gosh. Then then it was even more crazy because I was like, oh, wait a minute. That just really happened. And so I was so confused. And then I didn't know what to say to my friend because I was like, how do I explain? Do I tell her? Do I not? And so I asked her, you know, I know this is a weird question, but I said, what time did, did Misty die? And then basically, I like I said, I can't remember all the details at, at this point now, but basically Misty had died right after I had come out of meditation. And so I took that as I can't deny what mm-hmm. just happened. I can't deny it. It, it. Something happened and it was so beautiful. Like it was not something that I want to deny happened, but it was really like shook me. I didn't understand why it happened. I didn't understand what had happened. And then... I was also kind of like, does that make me like a weird person that this happened to me? You know what I'm saying? You just start to be like, I don't want to be the weird one who can, you know, talk to dead people or cross over or or who knows what it even meant at the time I didn't know. And so the one thing that I know is that after that event, I was different. And this is one thing that people who have near-death experiences come back and they're changed. They're like, nothing is the same after that. And a lot of people have near-death experiences They can explain like, you know, they're going through a tunnel or they're like in this soup or whatever. And and I can't explain any of that. And I didn't have these visual experiences, but it was more whatever happened to me and whatever that was that I was bathed in had changed me. And so what happened was, is that after that event, I just became more clear that I have to leave. Something's not right. I can't tell you what it is but I know I have to leave. And I think some of that ties back to that conversation that I had with my husband in 2019, that when I had helped that patient die and I had crossed over or I had, you know, gotten that awareness that, oh my gosh, I leave alone. Now I was tying that together with the knowing that I had obtained from being in this space. And a couple of things that I knew when I came back was number one, that when we die, that's not the end. Like I knew that Misty didn't go anywhere. Like I knew she carried on. It was just this body that had, you know, perished. 
So that that was the first thing that I knew. The second thing is, is that I knew wherever we go is so much more amazing than what we have here that there was nothing to be afraid of. I had no fear over, about death after that experience. And then the third thing was that when I go there, when it's my time, I want to be able to say that I lived my life in a way that is in alignment with who I am authentically. Because I sense that I would be held accountable for whatever I did, but not in like a judgment, you know, hellish kind of way, but like that what I do here matters. And that if I deny who I truly am and what I believe to be true, that I will be accountable for having lived that way in this lifetime. I'm really struck, even before you connected both in both moments, I was already struck by the first pivotal change was your experience with Patsy, helping her transition. And I remember also when you were doing that, I remember being very in awe because that is also courageous work. That is also not easy work and it's profound work. And then to have this second experience, which I also remember, you know, you sharing with Misty. And what's interesting is in the first experience, you learn this sort of lesson of we don't take anything with us. We leave alone. This profound like understanding of that only being true to ourself matters because we leave alone. And then you have this experience with Misty's and when we leave, it's even better than anything we can imagine. So there's no fear. Do you think that those, especially the second experience, is part of what allowed you to start making the change, to start leaving your life behind you, making radical shifts in your life without knowing how or why you were doing it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing that came from that experience was just I could sense inside myself what was right or what was aligned with me and what wasn't aligned. And so I used that idea that I'm leaving alone. I have to be true to myself. And then this knowing that I was that I gained from crossing over. And so basically I started just looking at, okay, what doesn't feel aligned with me and how can I move that out of my, you know, life so that I can find what is aligned. But I think what's confusing, especially when you're in a profession that is so highly specialized and that I didn't have my first job until I was 32. So I was literally in training until I was 32 years old for one particular specialty that it wasn't like I was going to go back to school and study a different field of medicine because I'd be there till I was like, you know, 60 <laughs> or something. And so it was using those clues to start to navigate. And so one of the things that I learned in retrospect now that ties into all of this, but I, I didn't know it at the time, but I think it's important to insert now so that people can get a full picture of, of what's happened to me is that I read David Hawkins. He's an MD, PhD, who has a, his most popular book is probably Power Versus Force. And so I read that book and actually not that long ago. I read that book probably in April of this year. And in there, he talks about the frequency of emotions and, and how they're tied to health and well-being. And basically the idea is this, is that low frequency emotions like guilt, shame, anger, fear are where illness is created in the body. And then 
emotions that are high frequency, the highest being love, peace, and joy. Those are like the three highest. And then enlightenment is on there, but like most humans are not experiencing enlightenment, although maybe that's what I experienced on the other side of of that in that space. But basically, he has this paradigm that describes the frequency of emotions. But the piece that really hit home for me is that in his book, he talks about people who have near-death experiences and that when they cross over, what happens is that they are bathed by these very, very high frequencies. And so those high frequencies change them. And when the person comes back, it actually can be really hard to reassimilate because you've experienced these really high frequency emotions and, and feelings. And then you come back. There's so much contrast. Like the world is, is not that, right? The world is not just love, peace and joy. And so people have a hard time putting that all together, but it fundamentally changes them and entering into a space with such high frequency. It also allows you access to higher levels of consciousness. And so for me, that made so much sense that whatever had happened to me, I couldn't explain it in terms of the like logistics of what happened, but the idea that I had been bathed in these very high frequencies and that that had changed me made a lot of sense. And that I was starting to develop a knowing inside of me that was related to higher consciousness. And so I could tap in and sense whether something was true for me or not, because I was, I had an experience with those high frequencies. So then I could get myself back in there to recognize truth, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think a lot of people listening to this may also feel like I've had a knowing when something's not aligned. I've had a knowing when I meant to leave or that things aren't right. And sometimes it takes all, all this time. Sometimes we can look back at something retrospectively and say, oh, I knew that wasn't right, but it took me a long time to leave. I'm wondering, how did you take that knowing, that experience, and then put it into action? So we're going to end here for this week. Thank you for joining me on Born to Heal. It's been a privilege to share this time with you. And I hope that today's episode has offered you valuable insights on your journey toward optimal health. Please consider subscribing, sharing this podcast with your friends, and leaving us a review. To learn more about how you can work with me, please visit katiedeming.com. You can find additional resources in the episode show notes linked below. And remember to join us next week as we continue to explore more holistic approaches to healing. Until then, this is Dr. Katie Deming reminding you that just like me, you were born to heal.